Okay, welcome to another episode of my channel. Today I am here with Philosophical Zombie Hunter. So maybe I should also say this is an episode or a video of his channel. He also has a YouTube channel. I had a call with uh, Sam Cedar, which you might have seen. This is a leftist uh, internet show, host of the Majority Reports. A few months ago, I called into Sam Cedar's show. He's got over a million subscribers. And um, many people saw it, including Philosophical Zombie Hunter. And he had left a comment on one of my videos shortly after that call saying that he there are some things that he was interested in talking about in the wake of that debate and i was uh, happy to have a conversation about that so we're gonna talk about that and maybe uh, we'll get to some other issues later on we'll, we'll see as it goes but we're at least going to start with that topic so uh welcome philosophical zombie hunter and uh I guess I can put a link to your, your channel in my description and um, so people can find you if they want. Let me just throw it over to you and you can uh, take it away. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Dan. Uh, yeah, I am uh, have a somewhat of a small YouTube channel where I, I mainly do uh, debates and uh, some videos about objectivism but mostly it's a long-form debate or long-form discussions. Okay. I've seen some of those, which has been interesting to, to watch. Uh, so what were your thoughts on the Sam Cedar debate? You, I think you said in your comment that there are some things about that debate that you were interested in talking about. Um, By the way, well, just before we do that, <clears throat> If anyone wants to, wants to see this debate, maybe you would like to watch it first. I don't have a link yet to, to that on my channel. Um, at least I don't have a video linking to that video. But if you just go to, if you just search on YouTube for uh, Sam Cedar, uh, I think this, the title of the, the debate on Sam Cedar's channel is Ayn Rand Fan Debates Objectivism with Sam Cedar. So if you just put that in the YouTube search engine, you can find the debate. Um, so that's what we're talking about and maybe check that out and then come back here to watch, watch this, but all right, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. This is your claim to, f to fame, Dan. Yes. <laughs> it's my End biggest appearance minutes. so far. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think it was a difficult, uh, situation, obviously. I don't think, I don't think that, uh, it could have gone much better in the current way it was set up. You basically had two people there trying to kind of essentially make fun of you, uh, not if they wanted to like uh, not let you talk and ask you questions to then like lead you into some sort of of saying some sort of ridiculous answer. Uh, they would encourage. They would have let you do that um, if you would have started debating with them then uh, they probably would have tried to shut you down or the third person would have done research in the background and made it very difficult on you. So I, I think that kind of setup isn't like a, a place to have an honest discussion or an honest debate uh, in general. But um, what were your thoughts? I'm just taking some notes here. So if you see me looking down, that's fine. 
so you, you mentioned the point that it's not really the place to have an honest debate. No. And I think that might be right. However, I'm not sure that means it's not good to debate Sam Cedar or other people like Sam Cedar. So I think um, one way to look at it is that as an advertisement. So I'm not primarily there to engage with Sam uh, as an end in itself. Like the, I'm not going to convert Sam. I don't expect to change his mind or the mind of many people in his audience, but he's got over a million subscribers. You know, it's a lot of people who, who are seeing his content. So my hope is to reach a lot of those people and maybe some of them are, are uh, more honest. Uh, I'm not making a claim about anyone's honesty, but um, uh, I think it's uh, perhaps there are more more honest people in the audience who would be open to other ideas, and um, it's a way to reach those people. Going on these platforms that have large audiences, and I did get uh, quite a large uptick in subscribers after I went on to Sam's show, uh, much more than I usually get. Uh, I've I've had about right now I think I have 287 subscribers, and that, that was up from like 250 something, I think, when I went, went on the show. So it went up, I think it went up about 30 subscribers very soon after the show, maybe partly as a result of me going on um, various other, like on Facebook to let all my friends, Facebook friends know about the appearance. Maybe, I, I don't know where these subscribers were coming from, but I, I got um, a nice little uptick. So. I'm not so concerned about the hosts. I mean, there's, I guess if he was so bad, um, you gotta draw a line somewhere. Um, and maybe there's some hosts where I wouldn't go on the show at all, but I, I didn't think Sam was um, so bad that it's, it's not worth the, the potential benefits uh, of going on his show. So that's kind of how I think about that. I could appreciate that uh, from, from the outside, it could seem like a good publicity uh, thing to go on his show and try to get like a few minutes in. Uh, I think though that he wasn't very charitable with your appearance. Uh, yeah, I think at least certainly in, in parts, I think of his, of that debate. So I have called three times now. Um, and the, the one we're primarily talking about here is the second call. So the, the first time I called in, it, it actually wasn't debate. It wasn't to debate politics or philosophy at all. I had been in the chat room of his YouTube channel during, uh, I think, uh, one, one of his previous shows. And people were just saying obnoxious things. Most famously, someone said that, that I was infertile uh just i have no idea why just some silly silly comments which i didn't really care that much about the obnoxiousness i kind of expect that um on you know channels of people who have very different ideas but my issue was that i wasn't allowed to block those people so i blocked some of these people who were making these rude obnoxious comments 
and then I announced in the chat room that I that, that I blocked these people. And then the moderator who saw that announcement said, you have to unblock these people or he's going to block me. I don't know if you saw that call, but anyways, that was my, I wanted to talk to Sam about that because I didn't think that was a, a good policy to have for his chat room, that you're not allowed to block people who are being rude and obnoxious. You have to just sit there and listen to all that stuff. I don't see why that's a good idea. So I called about that. And then uh, about a week later, uh, I called back to discuss objectivism, no longer the chat room policy issue. But he, he picked up on it early in the call that, oh, aren't you the guy who called last week? And said, yeah. And then there was this running joke about, oh, now you're the infertile guy who was calling because that came up in the first call. Now, so the second call, the first call about the chat room was only about 10 minutes, like eight minutes was the clip I think that ended up on their channel. These all got clipped and published on his channel. The, the second call was about half an hour. And that's the one where we deba debated objectivism, mostly its application to political philosophy. And then it was about, so that was late October. And then mid-December was my third call in my, so far, which was my last call so far to the majority report. I called in to discuss uh, the island example or a version of the island example that came up the, at the end of my second call. So um, if, if, you, if you search for, just to get this all on record for people who are listening to this and aren't really in the loop, if you search for Sam Cedar discovers the YouTube live chat, you'll find my first call. And the second one I already gave, Ayn Rand fan debates subjectivism with Sam. And then the third call is libertarian takes Sam to coconut islands. So I'm not a libertarian. And I said that in, in my second call, I said, I'm an objectivist, not a libertarian, but I think they're not really familiar with the term objectivism as much. And they, I think maybe they, they think they'll get a lot of clicks if they put libertarian because his fan, a, a lot of, he, he's famous for debating libertarians. And I think his audience has an appetite for that. So maybe that was a way of, of getting views. But in any case, um, that's how they titled the video, Libertarian Takes Sam to Coconut Island. The Coconut Island is a reference to this example that another YouTuber who goes I'm, by the name Bosch. I'm familiar with the coconut island example. Yeah. Thank you. You don't right. need to describe it to me. Right. Just for the audience. It's it's no, a vulgar you example. Don't, you don't no, you don't need to describe to the audience. I'm yeah, I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say concretely what it is, but if if you're in the audience and you don't know what this is, if you just Google coconut island and Vosh, you'll you'll find out. It's a vulgar example and it's used to make a point about coercion and whether certain transactions between people are voluntary or, or coercive, but it's, it's done in a vulgar way. I tried to bring up uh, uh, different kind, less vulgar, use vul less vulgar examples to make similar points in my third call. So now I've, I've laid out the history of my calls, all of my three calls to Sam Cedar so far. So uh, I, uh, going back to what we were uh, discussing, I, we were in this in the midst of the second call. I don't I don't remember exactly what point you or I were making about it, but let's go back to that now that we've 
step the way of the land. I don't think I've seen the second call. I, I think I'm not entirely no, sure. No, you've seen the second call. That's the one you re replied in a comment about. You haven't seen okay. either the first or the third call. If you've only seen one, it's the second call that you've seen. Okay, then I've seen the, the one. Okay, just the second call. Okay, so we can go back to talking about that one now. So you, you had made a point about uh, them not being honest. And I said, yeah, but there's there's a value in reaching more people in the audience or building my own audience by, by reaching more people. It's not really about changing Sam's mind. And then I forgot how, uh, what you said after that. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I appreciate that, you know, it, it, uh, it helps to build an audience. I think if you would like to do that, then in the best case scenario, you, you should do like an in and out kind of thing, like go in, give like a clear, concise message and then say, I have to go by. Because if like you stay, if you, if you linger there for a little bit too long, they'll, they'll basically kind of like toying with, it's not, it's not a debate. It's like your entertainment, entertainment for them. And from what you're describing, you're, you're practically like a, a regular there now. Got three calls in anytime you want to go they'll you know they'll move you to the front of the line because you they, they know you already um but uh you know it's it's your call essentially like you you have to figure out what's best for you mm -hmm. yeah uh i have thought about like what is different ways to optimize my appearances there uh, one thing i really liked about going on his show is how much time he gave me i mean the second call was almost half an hour and this is a huge platform and i mean i don't i don't know that there are that many hosts with that kind of audience size that lets just random people call in and stay on for that long so i was actually quite pleased to, to be able to stay on there that long i mean you can get a lot more points in in half an hour than you can in three or four minutes so you do run the risk of them making fun of you and being condescending and that kind of thing but i i don't think that's the most important consideration i think it's more important to get the truth out there and actually many people i think even in his audience were turned off by him the way he conducted himself if you look at some of the comments that people were writing, they're like, you know, I generally agree with you, but you know, you, you, you looked really um, bad. You came off bad and, you know, maybe he lost some, some fans or at least some enthusiasm from some of his fans. Um, and I think if I conduct myself in a dignified way and he doesn't, then I mean, the people whose opinion I care about, they, they'll probably notice that. And uh, so I, I don't, I don't really, um, I mean, I wouldn't have a discussion with someone who treated me like that in private one-on-one, -on -one, but because it doesn't have the upside of being able to reach thousands and thousands, um, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. Um, but because I can do that, I think that value outweighs the disvalue of you know putting up with some some uh suboptimal behavior 
to put it nicely uh, on his part. Um, I mean, I I can appreciate. So if if uh, if it was the case that with him making fun of you, he makes himself look bad. That's plus a plus for you. Um, I mean, I I think that because he has support and backup there. Um, in in the in the studio where he's in, then maybe he can like make himself look. I'm not sure to be honest, but uh, it. Um, I mean, if it if it was me, uh, but again, you are you, I am myself. Um, and I had the opportunity to speak to someone like uh, Sam Cedillo. To be honest, I I didn't think of doing that but let's say i i did i would try to get a message in get like a message that i wanted to if, if he says a joke i would laugh with him like as in it doesn't really affect me and then i said thank you for listening to me and and walk and walk away similarly there are some debates where i won't start or walk or walk away midway because i have certain i don't know certain standards that I won't, I won't debate with people. I won't debate. I won't debate people who who go below these standards. And uh, if like it's not productive, and the and the guys, the guy I'm talking to is like a conspiracy theory nut, I'll be like, okay, this is going nowhere, and I'll I'll end and debate. Not that this is what happened with you and Sam, but I'm just giving an example. Um, but if you are planning on doing other similar things or. Um, debates in the future is there something you wanted to discuss in terms of strategy or tactics or stuff like that hmm. well just one thought on the something you said uh you, you said something like if you like doing this okay go for it um i, I mean i i don't want to make it sound like there's only one way to do these kinds of things or that it's like just because I, I do this, everyone who's interested in objectivism or promoting objectivism should also do this. We should all next MC do like we call him, <laughs> call him like ninety people like every day like just like I'm an yeah. objectivist like hang on, next one. I'm also an objectivist like one after the other. Then maybe he'll start using the term objectivist instead of libertarians. Maybe even when you are an objectivist and say you're not a libertarian, he'll still call you a libertarian. But may, yeah, maybe if he gets enough people um yeah i mean so not everyone is gonna want to do the, the sort of thing i do or even like that i am doing it um but i i don't think there's just one way to go about this people have different personalities they have different goals in life they have different concerns about being anonymous non-anonymous um there are all kinds of considerations that that go into this uh, given my situation, I I very much enjoyed having this opportunity. And even though a lot of a lot of people they they think like I'm I'm subjecting myself to all its ridicule, but I mean, if I know in my own mind that the ridicule is BS, then it just doesn't mean anything to me. Um, I'm concerned with getting good ideas out there and reaching 
people uh, who are open to, to good ideas. So all the buffoonery and the insults or the, the mockery, it's, it's just silly. And I think people whose opinions matter, um, they're gonna see through that. So I, I see it as a positive experience and I wanna do more of this kind of thing. I've got some more debates lined up. Um, not with Sam Cedar, although I would like to call oh, back don't, there. Don't stop on Sam Cedar. Just just keep on banging, keep on like going at it. And th and then next time, by the way, he says, "Oh, you're the infertile one." Yeah. <laughs> next time, reply like this. Actually, Sam, I am infertile, and you're hurting my feelings by bringing this up. And I spoke to the rest of my uh, my uh, infertile committee, and we're not very pleased with how you're putting us down. I mean, it's very insensitive of you, and just like go like that. Yeah, lean into the joke. Uh, I mean, I could do something like that. When he, he brought it up in my third call, I guess this is the one you haven't heard yet. I, I just kind of brushed it off. But my phone, th there was some disconnection in my phone for just a couple seconds. So you couldn't really hear what I said. I was just, um, oh, I said, I, I'm the guy who, uh, we, we talked about objectivism a few weeks ago. Uh, you, you remember that call? And he said, oh, you're the guy with fertility issues or something like that. And then I just said, uh, sure, if that's what you want to think. Anyway, and then I went on with my points. But when I said, sure, if you want to think that, that's fine. That part got, there was uh, some disconnection in the line, so you can't really hear that. But anyways, I just kind of ignored it because I had higher priorities uh, more important things to discuss than than that silliness. Um, maybe so, I'll invite you on the show, maybe like a face to face interview. Yeah, maybe maybe one day I'll, I'll get to that point. Maybe you'll be like a like, um, a, like a legend of the show. <laughs> yeah, someone actually, or maybe more than one person, called me a a, a legend in the chat room at least. Uh, I've been made a meme. There, there's a bunch of posts on Reddit about me on the not just the, the majority report Reddit, but other uh, left, left wing uh, or bread tube as they're called um, Reddit pages. Um, so yeah, I, it, I got quite a reputation in their community. Um, some people were saying like, this was the best call of the year or one of the top ones. Uh, so it's very memorable <laughs> for, for good or bad reasons, depending on your point of view. But anyway, yeah, I do plan to do more of it. It actually was not easy to get back on the third time. So after the call that you heard, the second call, uh, it took me like seven weeks, I think, to get back on. And I was calling back in like almost every day they had a show. Um, and I was trying tricks like going into the Discord and asking their moderators if they can highlight my call or do something to notify Sam that, you know, it's me because he likes to debate libertarians um, or at least people who are close. Um, so you would think he would want to take those calls. I was tweeting at Sam a couple times in those seven weeks to ask him if he wanted to continue the debate. And I emailed them and I never got any reply. But then finally, mid-December, he decided to take my call again. Uh, so I don't know if he was... Um, purposely ignoring me or he just 
he had no idea it was me calling or what. But anyways, it was much harder to get on the third time than it was the second time. Uh, I don't know how it's going to go the fourth. Actually, for my next call, the fourth call, if there ever is one, I think I'm going to call on a Thursday because at the end of the second call, uh, the, the show producer, Matt Leck, the voice you hear off screen sometimes, he, he said, he, he actually suggested that I call back in to talk about A equals A. That's how he put it. So this is, you know, a, a motif in Ayn Rand's writing, well, Atlas Shrugged in particular, this idea of A is A. I'm familiar. Um, if for the audience, I know you know, I'm sure you know this. Um, but um, so in Atlas Shrugged, there's this theme of uh, A is A, and that's the name of one of the parts of the book. And so the show producer said he wants to talk to me about that. And he suggested I call back in on Thursday because that's the day that Sam usually takes off each week. So one of these Thursdays, I think I will try to call in and have a discussion about that and whatever else that leads to. But that's the next Can I make a call on my agenda for, for the majority part. Yeah, go ahead. I, I think that if you, if you call back, I think you should, you should leave them hanging for a while. I think you should let some time go by. I think you should do some other things. Like, you know, like a sort of like relationship between a boyfriend and ex, ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend. Yeah. And then like before they, you know, like before they started, before it gets too long, then, then you call back and say, hey, what's up? Yeah, well, I've let over, I mean, you don't want to be uh, clingy and desperate and so yeah, like you don't nagging them desperate. and and so they just get annoyed with you and they don't want you around at all space it out a little bit yeah i think there's something to that and um i definitely since my last call i haven't tried once and it's been over a month now it's been uh close to two months so uh, i'm hopeful that next time i try to call in it'll be much easier um, so but but in the meantime i've been setting up other debates which I've, uh, I've got one scheduled. I've actually got a time down. I won't announce these until they actually happen and I'm sure I want to publish them, but I, I do have some other debates in the works. What are the topics? Uh, one is it's going to be versus the socialists. So it might just be a socialism versus capitalism kind of debates. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe uh, I was thinking about focusing on the issue of coercion, an issue that okay. came up uh, in my third call to Sam Cedar. There's another debate with another socialist I've got in the works, uh, which is, I guess, kind of like a capitalism versus socialism debate, but it's, it's going to be focused, at least in the title, the way it's going to be titled, it's going to be focused on Ayn Rand's defense of capitalism. So um, her, her view of capitalism is going to figure prominently, at least in the title. <laughs> so you're, you're in the second one, you're um, explaining her position or you are? Yeah, what's her defense of capitalism? So he's going to attack her defense and then I'm going to defend her defense or at least say, say what is her it, defense is. But is it also like uh, this is her position and she's wrong because I have all this evidence that you need to know in advance? that she's wrong and if you don't know how to reply to the evidence then it doesn't look good you mean is that my opponent's position P potentially yeah uh 
Well, I guess he's going to, see, I don't know who's going to go first in the debate. Like if I will make an opening statement and then he will just respond to that or if he's going to start. Um, so I'm not exactly sure how it's going to do, how it's going to go, but somehow or other, he's going to try to undermine her defense of capitalism. Now, hopefully he's not going to attack a straw man. He's going to get her defense right. Um, if he actually does, well, you know, that remains to be seen. But I guess ideally the way the debate would go is that we, we don't straw man her defense. We, we put on the table what her defense actually is, and then he shows why he thinks there's something wrong with that or something insufficient about it. And I will presumably counter whatever objections he tries to raise against it. Okay. Um, and then there's, there's one other debate with a third socialist. I got a lot of socialists on the line. Um, but I just- these people, by the way? Uh, on YouTube, you know, I find various channels. I've been trying to find people that have relatively large audiences. One of them is, is smaller than mine in terms of subscribers, but the other two are a lot bigger. Uh, actually, but there's a third, which I haven't mentioned yet. Um, in addition to these three socialists, there's another guy who's not a socialist, but I think he describes himself as right or center right. And he says he has some libertarian tendencies sometimes, I believe he said that, but he also has described himself as a statist, I heard him say once. So I've been, I'm still trying to get a handle on what exactly his views are. So I've been watching some of his videos, study up on him. And um, we've got, actually, I do have a debate set with, a date for that debate set up. So I have two debates uh, nailed down and then two others, which I'm trying to get dates for they're in the works okay so the thing is I, i'd like to relay concerns tell me what you what you think so obviously on the philosophy side you know you've got that down that's that's not an issue not 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 even an argument um i think you i don't think you can rely on that too much in these sorts of debates uh, the core, obviously, you can, but and coercion, things like that, obviously, you can. But uh, I think a lot of these debates do typically involve uh, like studies or statistics or points of reference or that that or or, or just like something they pulled out of their <laughs> pulled out of their house, like because they read some and a non you know four chan forum or something um so a lot of the thing that i find that a lot of these um debates sometimes you need to be aware of certain positions that that your opponent may may take and you need to kind of uh, prepare for that so it won't surprise you during the debate and i, I do notice that you you do kind of like go with some of the things in your debates you go with like a sort of philosophical approach like mm, let's think about it what does this mean and i'm not saying i'm not saying that's uh, that's wrong I, I, in fact i i think it's admirable i just think that in that in the actual debate if someone like throws something strange at you and and the example i gave was when someone threw like some conspiracy theory that was half half true half half a lie 
because I, I I read up about it. It was so strange what the other guy was saying. I think it was a communist uh, debater you, you were debating with. And like, it just didn't sound right. So I had to research, but I never heard of it before. Uh, but the way it was presented is completely false. So it was half false, half half true, but obviously a half, half truth is a full lie. So you kind of need to know that reference. I, I also would have needed to know the reference. You kind of need to know the reference to be able to be in that debate uh, and reply to it. And I'm not sure, I don't know if you've done like the, the, the groundwork for a lot of the stuff that Yoron uh, goes after. And even Yoron is like, tends to lean on the philosophical side. He obviously knows a lot about the details, but he likes to bring it to the philosophical side for the benefit of his audience. I feel though that that the younger debaters now, they like numbers, they like statistics, they like stuff like that. So how do you feel about those sides of the debate? Because you'll have a mixture of different approaches, but I do feel that you'll have, you will encounter those kinds of points in the debate. Yeah, uh, so Malfi Infidel is one guy that comes to mind. He's actually one of the people who I'm in talks with right now about setting up a debate. I, I know, to, know that he likes to um, cite statistics a lot, a lot of studies. And um, I don't know how much that sort of thing would come up in a debate with him. I mean, it depends on exactly what topic we settle on, um, how we agree to go about the debate. I, I, I'm not sure if I wanna go on a channel that has a moderator for a debate like that or have a more kind of freewheeling chat just on his channel um, and make it more of an exploratory kind of philosophical talk. I, I, I've been watching some of his videos and I, I don't know if he's a graduate student in philosophy, but it seems like he might be just based on the, the things he says, his knowledge, is he, he seems pretty steeped in academic philosophy literature and he says in one video like he spends all day reading philosophy i wouldn't be surprised if he's a grad student in philosophy so given given that i think i might want to try to have a more kind of philosophical conversation with him than he often does in in the debates i've seen with him like in the ones that you had or with your on where he's just citing study after study after study um i'm not sure uh at least given my interests and knowledge how how relevant or how good of an idea it would be to have that kind of discussion i mean you can't be omniscient you and you know there's a limited time and the, the sorts of things you can focus on and specialize in and i'm I'm most specialized in philosophy and I haven't read up on all these studies, but I don't know that it would be necessary to do that, um, to have a productive worthwhile conversation with him. Uh, I've seen some of, one of his videos in particular is, I think it's about, um, he's com comparing and contrasting utilitarianism and egalitarianism of John Rawls and then the view of this third philosopher, G.A. Cohen, who I, I guess that's the philosopher he likes the most on this issue anyways, of um, his moral perspective, I guess. 
that video, I think he's, he's more philosophical than in most of his other videos. He's not citing studies all over the place. So I was thinking maybe I should try to have that sort of conversation with him where I don't need to be up on all these studies. And, you know, that way I can um, play more to my strengths. And uh, it would be a uh, worthwhile conversation to have. So, so that's, uh, yeah, go ahead. So I'm not entirely pleased that uh, Malti keeps debating an objectivist. As far as I know, you would be the fourth objectivist he will debate. Uh, I'm not sure if like he's attracting it or people, or he's going after, but uh, either way, actually fifth, fifth objectivist. <coughs> um, I appreciate that you have strength, but uh, you know, you've seen the videos. Um, he will play to his. And um, I think at the very least, if you are playing or planning, sorry, planning to debate economics, you, you will need at the very least to raise your weaknesses to a certain point. Now, as the situation stands, even in objectivism, you have a concept and you have the concrete. Uh, if you're coming in with the concept, the philosophical side, you don't have some concretes, it, it will look uh, off to the viewers. And in the sense that you'll say, well, this is what Ayn Rand said, and here, look here, here, and here, it's similar in reality, and, and you can see now. Uh, Malti would say, here is a principle, let's say by, by Cohen, which, by the way, uh, Ayn Rand talks about uh, uh, there's a essay uh, where she talks about Rawls and Cohen. Um, I think it's called anonymous or unt untitled, untitled. Um, so you can you can read up on that because she gives her opinion on that. But uh, if he if he does, here is the concept. And here are like 10 different well-cited studies. Now, now bear in mind, I'm not saying these are concrete. In, it's not a concrete in, in the sense that you and I understand it. But for the viewers at home, if you have a study that says X, Y, and Z, people react very favorably to that. To them, it is a concrete and it is the ultimate truth. That uh, a study was released, even if it's not even, even if it's biased, it doesn't, whatever, it does not matter. The fact that there is a study that is a, a very strong indicator to them that this is what happens in reality. So painting a picture of, of concept plus concrete, he has more, you have less. If I'm not sure to, to how many you have. But if you're, if you're planning on playing in the economics area, you need to have more concrete. And you need to start, I, I don't mean this in this in this sense, but forming a story, not, not a lie, but a story where you're showing people how reality works by both zooming in and zooming out. Um, yeah. Are you familiar with the uh, data analytics at all or data science? Probably not. Unless you describe it, I'll see. Oh, you mean this by that, but um, I'm so, guessing so imagine, not. Imagine charts in Excel mm -hmm. or graphs in Excel. So we're talk we have graphs in Excel about the economy or different parts of the economy and stuff like that and you're giving a presentation to someone in an office, to like a bunch of people in an office, 
And you're saying this child, this child, this child. And that's why we think that this is what's happening right now. We have numbers, we have data, and we're, we're telling a story. Mm -hmm. To like, to like, uh, like uh, summarizing all the different details. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you, at the very least, like I appreciate, you know, you should, you should stay with your strengths. Now I am a proponent of people doing that because I have many weaknesses that are very weak, but I also have strengths which are strong. I, I, I have a bit of, of Asperger's and a bit of dyslexia. So it just turned out that way. But I would say even for my own professional career, I, I just made sure that the weaknesses are not horrible. I lost your audio. Don't know if you can Hello. still hear me. Oh, hold on. Oh, there we go. Now I hear you. Okay. I think my my plug for the headphone is a little messed Hello? up. If that happens again, I will try to switch over to my AirPods, which are charging now. But um, last thing I heard you say was. Um, you're talking about telling stories and um, playing to your strengths. Yeah, so I'm just I'm saying you should you should strengthen your strengths. You should go with your strengths, but but you should also raise your weak. In general, this is general life advice. Raise your weakness so they're like okay-ish. They don't have to be super strong, but uh, they shouldn't be holding you back either. Okay, so some thoughts on that. In terms of the, the issue of concretes, I definitely think it's important to have concretes. You don't want floating abstractions. And I was thinking uh, one way to do that is to cite history, not just like recent studies, which I think tends to be the sort of thing mouthy will will cite but the broad sweep of history going back hundreds thousands of years history is something i've studied a lot of it's um so i, I have quite an extensive background in that and i'm still studying it and i will like i plan to continue studying it for a long time and i think that will help me in in these debates it's a different kind of concrete or a set of concretes than reading up on some studies that have come out in the last few years or something. Uh, I, I would, I suspect that there's a lot of bogus studies. And I, I think Yaron has said this, Yaron Brook has said this in some of his debates with Vosh or, or Malfi, that some of these studies that they cite have been debunked. And, uh, it could smooth things out, I think, somewhat. If I looked into these myself and were able to say in my own voice, I've looked into these and they've been debunked. Um, in the meantime, until I get to that point, I have, uh, I think, a fairly extensive knowledge of history, which I can rely on for some concretes. But um, yeah, the more I do this, it, it may, it may, I think it, it will probably um, be good for me to become more familiar with the studies. It's definitely not something I'm against doing. It's just, there's an issue of time and priority and you know how much value do I get from doing that versus doing other things. And at some point, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I decide, yeah, I should start looking into these particular studies they're citing. So I have a more ready response. 
more impactful kind of response to those sorts of things. By the way, you don't have to, um, you can take a shortcut in this regard. You can just uh, ask some people to like get like the top 10 most relevant studies or the or top 20, and that's pretty much it. You know, Mousy cites in, in one of his videos, he actually links to some of his studies in the description. And I, I've actually pulled up the web pages of those studies and I was planning to, to look at them. And I probably will look at them before I have a, a debate with him. So yeah, that's, I guess, similar to what you're suggesting, you know, have someone cite the top 10 or 20 studies. So, so I will have in front of me exactly what he's looking at. So I think like uh, there's a YouTuber that I recently was introduced to that has a lot of studies, a YouTuber and TikTok person that has a lot of studies and does actually quite a really good job. Um, so I would check out his channel. He's called the uh, Prax Ben, P-R-A-X Ben. Uh, he's a anarcho-capitalist, but he does like debunk socialists and, and stuff like that. Um, now, Mouthy isn't, uh, he's not going to talk about the same stuff that Prax Ben will talk about. He's basically going to say welfare is good in, in the same sense what Yaron debated him about. <clears throat> and he's going to say that the Nordic model is good and that we should move. So the what is good? The Nordic model. Oh, right, right. And he's gonna say that uh, <clears throat> the uh, we should do like what Norway is doing, but but more of it. And uh, I did study the Nordic model and Norway quite a, quite a fair bit, and I also have family in Norway, which is funny. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean just. Just, you know, have like some understanding of what will be discussed, some understanding of the direction you want to go with. Uh, but I, but uh, the discussion that Mouthy will probably do is the same one that he did with Iran. It's it's not going to vary. Mouthy, I had this debate with him. It's not his position. His position is he wants a moneyless society. He wants like a legit, you know, to each according to his needs, to each according to his abilities, kind of society. Um, but I don't, I don't, I haven't seen him advocate for it unless he's, you know, taking a more courageous position in that direction. Uh, he's basically doing like a sort of reformist socialist kind of direction where we pick and pick and choose all these nice policies from social democracies and countries in Europe and countries in Scandinavia and ignore everything else and say, if we pick and choose and mix and match, we can get what we want. Uh, and for each things he picks and chooses, there's a study behind it, but there is no, but to some degree, like I was able, or at least maybe I'm wrong, but I was able to like say, well, if you're choosing this model, that's similar to this model over there in Latin America. If you're choosing this, that's similar to that, or there's a risk to doing this because I, I, I just, uh, from my, my profession, I have more of understanding of systems and, and complex systems. So I can figure out like if you do, if you tweak a system in this way, there'll be like another side of the system that will have a negative result. So I can just see these things happening and it's, it's more convenient for me. But um, 
I mean, that's just just my uh, advice. Uh, so you're gonna have to to you know read the studies for that at the very least, uh, because it's not gonna be socialism. It's gonna be laissez-faire capitalism is bad. Welfare is good. Here's all the evidence where welfare is good, and um, and yeah. But uh, I would like to ask you how how do you plan on using history? to debate about things or, or stuff from history mm -hmm. well uh i mean there's i think there's many ways it could be done i haven't thoroughly thought through exactly how i would go but i mean just take the united states for example how how successful that's been and how, for instance, in the late 19th century, the United States, which I think may have been the freest time overall in our country's history, at least in terms of um, economic freedom, uh, there was tremendous progress during that era. I mean, people- talk, talk to me about that progress. Give me some, some examples. <laughs> uh, oh, really? Well, I mean, there was like railroads were, um, so 18, 1820, 1830, I think they invented the railroads, yeah? Well, it was it was there, uh, I mean, earlier than the late 19th century, but I think it was, uh, it was growing. It yeah. was growing a lot, I think, throughout the century. The, the, the transcontinental railroad, I think, was established maybe 1869, something like that. Um, I think it was... The point is that, that this happened in a free economy in, a, in the private sector, yes? Well, I mean, not totally free, but uh, much freer than, than it is today, economically speaking. So there's never been a completely laissez-faire society, but the more society has been, the closer it's gotten to that, the better off it's been, I think, and the more progress has been made. and. Also, there were many millions of immigrants coming to the country during that time. So if, you know, I think that, that speaks to the attraction of that kind of society. Um, people were, they find themselves having better opportunities in America. They were attracted by the, uh, the freedom and opportunities that existed in the United States. So I think, just America is a great example of how a society built on the kind of principles that objectivism advocates uh, is very successful. So that's, I think that's one way I would use history. Um, I, um, I particularly like all the inventions yeah. that happened in the second half of the 19th century. Right. Morse telegraph, telegraph, car, yeah, tele telephone uh some it's funny because I, I i saw like a it's kind of cute they have all these old movies on youtube which is basically like black and white fixed up fixed up uh, movies and there was one about uh about innovations in that period i think 19 1850 to 1910 so pretty much the period we're discussing mm -hmm. and um they called it the age of miracles now that's a really good title but as far as I know, everything I read about this period is called the Gilded Age. Mm 
on uh, on Wikipedia. And as far as I understand, this is because of the, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not American, but uh, this is a, a lot to do with the influx of uh, immigrants to the country who were very, very poor. And even though like at the time, the, there was work, there were industries that were setting up existing uh, wage earners saw the wages rise by between 40 and 60%. But because there were so many immigrants just coming into the country with very little money, it seemed like they were very rich and there was a big divide between the very rich and the very poor. Now, I could be wrong, but if you, if you could uh, let me know your opinion. Okay. Well, before I say anything, I should maybe say that this is an area of history which I am maybe relatively weak is a way to put it. I, I jump around in my study of history. Recently, I've been studying medieval Islam, actually. So I'm reading about um, Islam in the 900s. That's where I've been uh, most recently. But I've also had periods where I'm studying England in the 17th century and Greece in the you know, 5th century. So I jump around a lot. I've read some some about all periods of history, but I think relatively little about the era we're talking about right now. Um, so I'd like to read more about it, um, but I think there is some value to going through in a certain order. Uh, but anyway, I can say, based on what I have read, the, the term the Gilded Age, I think, maybe is not the best term for that age. It, I, I've heard an objectivist historian say that it sh it's better to call it the inventive age because that gets more to the essence of what the age was about. I, I'm not sure that's, that's even the best term. Maybe it's better, but I'm, I'm still not sure it's, it's the best. Maybe, maybe the progressive age would be I, even a I better think. term. I think the thing is that if, even if you say this is the age I call the progressive age, socialists or, or social de democrats will say, well, this was called the Gilded Age. It's, it's horrible. Why are you trying to replicate it? Right. So they, I mean, they have their, they have their own terminology and um, their, their set of smears, I think, for, for so much of history, um, including maybe especially including the, the so-called Gilded Age. And, you know, for instance, they call the people like Rockefeller and Carnegie, the robber barons, which I, I think is an unjust characterization. So definitely I would want to contest some of their terminology. Um, I think Gilded Age may be another term that should be contested. If you say something is gilded, I think what that might, uh, connote or maybe denote even uh that is mean literally is that something is just covered in gold but on its on the inside if you scratch the surface it's not gold so it's not good all the way through if you take gold to be a symbol of goodness like you want a ring to be solid gold if it's if it's a genuine gold ring you don't want to be some sold something that's just gold on the outside but it's you know plastic or something on the inside then it would just be gilded it just it looks like it's gold, but it's not. So I think maybe that's that word is kind of used as a metaphor. Maybe this age appeared to be great and all this progress and wealth, 
but really that's just the surface appearance that's ignoring all the um, terrible conditions people had to work in and the um, poverty that existed at the time. And people just get focused on this um, veneer of prosperity and uh, get duped into thinking that things were good when they actually weren't, if you dig a little deeper. Now, I'm not sure that's why it's called the Gilded Age or why some people called it the Gilded Age. This is just uh, something I, I might have heard this somewhere or, or maybe I'm just speculating. I don't know. But um, in any case, I think a lot of Marxists or socialists are going to say, point, they're going to point to a lot of uh, problems or at least alleged problems about that time period. Uh, and I'm going to want to have some kind of response to those. And I can say some things, but I'd like to do more research and be able to say even more than I can now. So that, that is an area that I want to beef up my knowledge in. Okay. Um, that, that, that was uh, just uh, my questions. I mean, uh, okay. I, again, if, if you uh, are gonna do debates about economics, you may need to like, just, just spruce up your, uh, spruce up on a few studies or relevant studies. And yeah, if, certainly if you want to present, uh, the, the age of the sorry, the second half of the 19th century, then uh, know as much about. Now, to some degree, there's a disadvantage because people remember it unfavorably in the context of the Gilded Age. But um, there has been like this result. I don't know if this is, a, this is obviously a very bad thing, but there's been this resurgence of uh, Marxist Leninists basically call themselves tankies or other people call them tankies who argue that, you know, the USSR was not that bad. And everyone kind of uh, doesn't really read about the USSR because the, they've already summarized that it is bad. And um, if someone says, actually, I have like all this deep knowledge and they, they grew their GDP and CIA said that they have plenty of food and all that kind of stuff, uh, then people are just kind of taken aback because no one actually studies about the USSR. It's, it's condemned as a failed experiment. But if you say, for example, well, this period of time wasn't as bad as people think and you, and you have a lot of information about it, then it could be to your advantage in a... Uh-oh, I lost you again. Hold on. Okay. All right, how about now? Yeah, I can hear you. Now? Can you hear me? Yep. All right. Sorry about that. I, um, yeah, I switched over to my AirPods and that didn't help. I think it might've made it worse. So I guess if this happens again, I'll just have to wiggle the uh, plug on my, my uh, regular headphones. But anyways, um, you're talking about um, Marxist Leninists giving the impression that there wasn't something that bad because they say, if you dig a little deeper into the data, you'll see that, you know, USSR wasn't so bad. So. No one, uh, no one thought about actually going over that data. Yeah, so it might be worth my time to look into some of that. Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, it's just an issue of priority. So, wh what do I want to beef up my knowledge most on? It could be partly a function of who I'm debating. Um, 
surely is at least partly a function of that and how much time I've got. But yeah, there's, there's endless amounts of debate preparation one could do. And I think one just has to balance the value of that versus all the other things one could be doing and constantly try to optimize, optimize everything. So I know you're more on the, uh, you're, you're very interested in economics. So, um, um, it's funny because I wasn't, I wasn't originally, I, uh, I, when I, when I originally studied objectivism, I was really interested in the epistemology and, and concept formation. And I found it really helpful in my work. And I've all, always, uh, I was always very bad with understanding people and understanding office politics and what motivates people and stuff like that and then after i uh i learned the concept formation i could see like steps in advance like if i could see someone doing things several steps in advance because i understood certain core, core concepts it was very cool but the thing with economics is just because i've been on earth for a little while and i've seen uh different businesses and i understand certain things that just gave me this advantage over people who know have no clue about the economy whatsoever it's it's a lot of it is and you may have seen this yourself conspiracy theories make belief abstractions abstract theories about stuff it's not it's not like it doesn't relate to anything I've seen or experienced in life and I've started from you know from meek beginnings to where I am now not that now is now is okay I'm, I'm happy where I am now I'm just just keep going at it um so it just it just and I'm very good with systems so like I'll I'll, I'll pick up like on how businesses run and stuff like that uh and how it's managed but it just it just an advantage to know that a lot of the stuff they say economics are just nonsense like it doesn't it doesn't compute it doesn't make sense there's no connection to reality and uh i started digging a bit more into this and then i could see like which is the right one and which wasn't right yeah i just um remembered a a show Yaron brooke did uh, some months ago on the happiness studies so this is not economic studies, which you were just talking about, but um, people often claim that the Nordic countries are the happiest countries in the world. And Iran did a, a show where he, he looked at some of these studies or one of them at least, and um, he tried to debunk them. I think he was made sense what he said, I think. So um, that's By something- the, way, the, the actual uh, happiness metrics, the USA is only like a few decimal places behind Norway. It's not like, it's not like Norway is like galloping ahead of everyone else. It's like really a tiny difference mm. between the first top 10 countries. Within the margin of error, maybe. No, I, well, um, I, again, it's, 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 it's a survey. Like, do you yeah. feel happy out of 10? But uh, I, I, I'm exaggerating, but it, it's a survey and uh, a subjective survey. Mm. And it's only a few decimal places different. So it could be like maybe the Scandinavians also live in a very cold environment. So maybe it's like, you know, other factors than paying high taxes. In fact, I see very little connection to happiness and paying high taxes. I don't know about you, 
but I can't find any study that's... In fact, I, I found the opposite, that if you pay high taxes, you'd be less happy. Hmm. Right. Yeah, one of the points I remember you're on making is that what's meant by happiness in these studies is, is not what you might think just based on the word. It's something more like contentment or like... Um, are you in, in that means, I mean, maybe you could think of contentment as being a synonym of happiness, but I think the sense it's meant in these countries, or maybe the, whatever word is used in the, their languages, it's, um, it's not really as positive a sense as it is in the US. It just means things aren't bad or something. It's not like things are really good. Um, I'm probably butchering this at least a little bit. So go to your on show to hear the actual thing. But anyways, um, I think that was part of his, his analysis that it wasn't really happiness as we would think of it in the U S at least that's being measured. It's something, um, it, Oh, it's like, I think he was saying they have low expectations and since they have lower expectations, it's much easier to meet their expectations and then they call that happiness, meeting these low expectations. Uh, so it's not genuine happiness. Um, it's more like mediocrity or something. Um, so if you have very a low bar for um, what you should be doing and you meet that, okay, well, maybe they meet that, but are they really flourishing, happy people in the sense that we would mean that here? Oh, well, technically, um, maybe not. Technically, people you would use the word flourishing, and this is this is part of the sleight of hand to some degree. They would take the word flourishing, they would take that happiness report, and say, "Look, these people pay high taxes; they have high welfare spending; they're very happy. Therefore, this sort of government is good for a flourishing life." They would use that word. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so. Right now, I just know secondhand based on what I've heard from Yaron's analysis. But yeah, if I have a debate with Malfi and and we, it, if it seems like this is a topic that would come up, then I'll probably take a look at that study firsthand. Right, um, I think we've talked about Malfi enough. Okay, <laughs> yeah, we can move on from him. <clears throat> I don't know why uh, he's a fetish with objectivists. Objectivists have a fetish with him. Well, you know, he's. Uh, I I think he said he left a comment on one objectivist channel, and that's that's what initiated one of his debates. But I don't know how his his debate his other debates came about, if he contacted them or vice versa or what. Uh, maybe he'll see this, but we but I've already had a tiny bit of communication with him, so which I initiated. <clears throat> so, is there any? Uh, topic you want to go to next or or is this enough or what um yeah i mean if you had anything you want to ask me okay maybe we can talk a bit about veganism so i i've Ooh. seen on uh some of oh. your videos that you're that's a topic you're interested in yes it's it's a topic i've not thought much about at all uh, very little actually but since you're interested in it and um i've got you here um how about we we talk some about that um so you're a vegan is that correct yep okay and 
I think in one of your videos, you you tried or you said maybe it can somehow be. Well, what is the connection between that and objectivism? Do you think you can infer from the moral principles of objectivism that one should be a vegan, or is it independence of objectivism? Um, How do you see that? I don't think I can. So there's, it's like I, I can answer this, and then it's like oh. How can I say this? I don't think you can force people in general to be vegan. Like, I don't think you can get into a situation where there's a an extrinsic an extrinsic moral law that uh, says you you have to be you have to be vegan. Otherwise, it's immoral. I rely a lot on virtue ethics from uh, objectivism, but virtue ethics is uh, a popular topic now with, with stoicism being on the rise and, and ancient Greece philosophy being on the, on the rise Spinoza Spinoza no it, it doesn't have virtue ethics sorry um, but uh, so I would say a lot of people don't really know uh, what goes in the process of killing an animal till it arrives on your plate raising an animal killing it arrives on your plate <coughs> they don't have that context in a lot of times when you show people that context and you say, look, I know that the plate arrived in front of you and everything, you know, is very colorful and smelled nice and you want to eat it, but let me, but now that you know what the context was from A to Z, do you still want to, to eat meat or another other animal products? Then you can have like a discussion on that. Uh, I feel that people's values come into play here they have to make this decision if uh, it violates the the virtues or values and to some degree it could be an emotional choice in the sense that in objectivism i would say that you at the very least thought about your thought objective objectively about which values you should go after and which virtues you should go after and if uh, and the role of the emotions is to see if you're on the right course there. So as in you, you, man is a is a self-made soul. You decide on which direction to go. And if and if uh, harming animals violates your values, violates your virtues, <coughs> then you can decide not to do it. Now, I can't, some people will still decide to do it. There are animal predators that will still decide to do it. And I can't force them to do it or not do it that to one side i i would say that uh, obviously because animals can't communicate with us and that's a, a big deal and, and ayn rand epistemologically thinks that animals don't have uh, the ability to reason which could be true uh, or, or like the capacity for uh, reasoning is very uh how can i say very low or it's very like um not conceptual but uh concrete bound to some degree. <coughs> um, the thing that I'm struggling with outside of objectivism is that there are objectivists that have pets. We do know that they're very social animals that between humans and animals. Are, animals are social be between themselves. They recognize faces. They recognize commands. Um, some are smarter than others, obviously. Uh, there are 
other animals with bigger brains than us and and there's a wide animals for example have dreams <coughs> if, if an animal had a friend uh, a good friend and then they didn't see each other for two years and the, the animal friend came back they would recognize them and start playing with them I feel that some of that is ignored like because we don't we don't fully know what that is now I think obviously the technology at the time of Ayn Rand wasn't available to do anything more and I don't know if necessarily we have a lot more information today <coughs> but um, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's as black and white as it is obviously there is something there um, not to the level of humans but I don't know if it's as low low life or low low form of of life as it's been depicted in in objectivism necessarily i could be wrong but uh, i think it's worth investigating but in any case for me personally i if i were to eat meat now it would violate my virtue of justice integrity and honesty okay uh justice integrity and honesty okay so you, you said you you don't think it should be illegal to kill and eat animals but i guess from, from i'm also getting that you do think at least in your case it would be immoral because it would violate these virtues it would be moral in my case if you're saying that do animals have rights um currently obviously they don't have rights and in objectivism you can't advocate for them to have rights uh you you can say that um <coughs> you can say that uh you can't be cruel to animals because that reflects negatively on you I think there's a point with regards to rights that some people in the vegan community have raised, which I should read more on, which like anim animals could be could have rights in the context of uh, children or like same rights as children or <coughs> or rights as um, I don't know, like not not full adults, but like like a, a lower form of rights. I haven't read too much mm. into that, but currently as it stands, it's not illegal, but it is immoral. For my stance okay okay that's um so i guess uh we could talk about or more deeply about why it's immoral so you said you think it violates these three virtues uh, objectivist virtues anyways justice integrity <clears throat> and honesty so it will violate, it will violate my virtues your virtues. Well, I mean, th those are common to anyone who's an objectivist. Those are three of the uh, basic virtues. Well, I mean, even within, Sorry. so Ayn Rand lists seven virtues, rationality, independence, integrity, honesty, justice, so let, let me, pride. Let me, yeah, right. Let me explain my sense. If I now stop eating meat, it would violate these three virtues. Okay. And okay so we can talk about let's talk about that some. so let's take one of them and uh try to get clear at least for me to understand 
uh, how it violates it. So uh, pick one of those three. Can you just take one of those three and walk me through how the virtue is violated? Well, I mean, if I eat meat and, and I don't feel I need to eat meat, then I, and I, I don't know why I would, but let's say I would, then um, I've caused harm to another sentient being, uh, ended their life when I didn't need to do that. It, it's, it's a luxury. It's not something I need to sustain my life with. Um, <clears throat> and it's uh, unjust. Okay, so it's unjust. So, like, why did what, I have to harm the animal for? Yeah. So one the one of the first things, maybe the very first thing that comes to mind is a formulation in Leonard Peikoff's book, Objectivism: The Philosophy of Ayn Rand. The section on justice is, the, is titled. I, I think it's justice as rationality in the evaluation of men, if I'm remembering correctly. So if, if uh, it's rationality in the evaluation of men, well, that would exclude animals, which isn't to say you should be irrational or it's okay to be irrational in, in and uh, evaluating or dealing with animals or anything. I mean, rationality is the basic virtue, so you should always be rational, whatever you're dealing with, even if it's an inanimate object. Um, you don't wanna, you know, use a spoon as a fork. <laughs> uh, that would be irrational to do, not in your self-interest. Um, but if we're talking, um, and immoral because uh, it would be immoral. Uh, maybe a small instance of morality, but immoral nonetheless. But uh, I, I wonder if the treatment of animals is somehow outside of the scope of justice. If we if we are understanding justice as treating other human beings in a way that's rational, uh, maybe you could still say it's it's irrational to eat animals, but it wouldn't be unjust according to the objectivist definition, if the objectivist definition is being rational in your dealings with other human beings. Um, so- um, Well, I, uh, obviously, <coughs> obviously I'm harming another being for what I would consider no good reason. Uh, and causing them pain and suffering. I could be extending it slightly further than what objectivism originally intended, but at the very least, it's it's virtues applied to my life. Uh, and I do warn you, Dan, if uh, you put yourself in a logical situation where animals have very little meaning, that I could play with it in the, in another direction that you won't find very pleasant. Uh, what do you mean? I'm not sure if you want to go there. <coughs> well, it's up to you. Because if 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 uh, we can already establish even within objectivism that you should not harm animals, you should not be cruel to animals. So I don't think that uh, even even Pykov would, would disagree with that considering he had dogs. 
and and Iron Man had cats. Um, so to some degree, there is that element. Uh, but if you if you world it as in, you shouldn't be cruel to animals because it reflects poorly on you, as in, in for your own uh, integrity, let's say. Then, uh, and and animals are like outside the scope of any consideration. Then you know I could I could play around with that in a, in a negative way as well. Well, I'm not saying they're outside the scope of any consideration, just outside the scope of justice. So it still might be within the scope of rationality to say, or so you might still say it's irrational to be cruel to animals. And I, and I think it is. And I think Ayn Rand and Leonard Peikoff uh, would say that and have said that. Um, at least I know Leonard Peikoff has said that. But it's just, the point I'm raising right now is just, is it, an issue of justice, or is it rather an issue of rationality? Maybe what's more relevant to talk about here is just whether it's rational, because I mean, it, if it's wrong because it's irrational, <laughs> uh, it's still, that's plenty of reason not to do it. Um, it doesn't matter so much which virtue it violates. If it violates any virtue, then that's, that's uh, sufficient reason not to do it, or at least that counts against it, doing it. So why would I not choose not to eat animals? Why would uh, I yeah, so you you, you said it, it causes needless pain and suffering. Was that basically? Well, it's it's not like it's not in the context of utilitarianism, and I'm trying to like reduce pain and suffering in general. But let, let's put it this way, right? Like if if the animal was in front of me right now, and I had to kill it and, and prepare it to then eat it, I'm like I don't feel I need to I can just you know get a vegan meal or something or vegetarian vegan meal or something like that uh, I don't need to eat the meat I, I can I can eat something else or I can eat I have a variety of different things that will sustain my life and I I would argue looking at some of the uh, nutritional science literature that potentially and I, again I'm just this is just my opinion probably my life would be extended if I if I choose not to eat it now if, if the animal was in front of me and I had to take action to kill it and prepare it, I would choose not to. In fact, I would choose bad. I would, sorry, I would feel bad if I did kill it and then prepared it. It would affect me very negatively going forward. And I may even uh, have flashbacks afterwards. And, and I would say that reduces the, rationally speaking, that would uh, traumatize me in some way and reduce the quality of my life. Now, I would also say that uh, I have, I have, Heard people say that you know I've, I've I've shot something at a distance and I didn't feel any anything wrong with that. I'm sure that shooting even human beings at a distance isn't as bad as it seems, but uh, as a joke. But uh, I think like if you if you kill something upfront and personal, it's traumatic. And um, I know that uh, people in the the meat industry that do that as a as a living do have PTSD from it, and they don't. They don't stay in the industry for too long. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's my take on it. Again, I, I, I'm not trying to... And, and you know, if, if any of you wants to investigate what the animals go through <coughs> from when they're raised, how they're raised, to when they're killed, uh, I, I encourage them to see the process to, to understand the full context. Um, and that's 
my ra rationale. Okay. By the way, speaking of animals, do you hear some crows flying around and cawing in the background? Okay. They must like, I, they must like you. Well, they just came here uh, a few minutes ago, I think. Um, I've been trying to tune them out, but I was hoping it was only audible by me and not by whoever's hearing this through the recording, but um, hopefully it's it's not too distracting. Um, I have to do this up. Song, <laughs> um, wow, there are a lot of them on the... Maybe they're tuning into your show. Yeah. Um, maybe if I make a noise, they'll all... What you need to do, you need to leave them some uh, puzzles and tricks. They like that kind of stuff. <laughs> that made most of them fly away, at least further. Eventually, then. So. Well, hopefully, it'll be at least a lower volume crow calling. Um, this is uh, it's crow busting for me. If anyone knows the uh, the reference and objectivism, there's too much to hold in mind with all these crows and then this discussion going on at the same time. It's it's overwhelming my crow. <clears throat> That's a reference to object introduction to objectivist epistemology for anyone who wants to uh, know the story. I won't try to tell it or explain the significance of it. Um, but I, I think I got uh, I was able to focus enough on what you were saying to to get uh, enough to say something in response. Um, one thing that came to mind was uh, a story from my one, the, my fishing story. So when I was a kid, I was nine or 10 years old and it was the one and only time I caught a fish. I was fishing off a pier in Florida and down there visiting some relatives. And I caught a fish and I reeled it up, but I didn't want it. I didn't plan to eat it that night uh, or do anything with it. Um, but there was another fisherman down the pier who said, hey, like, if you don't want that fish, can I have it? And I felt kind of reluctant, but I did give him the fish, but I felt bad about it because I was the one responsible for ending that fish's life or I would have been, you know, if he took it home and then he cooked it for dinner. And my mom, who was around on the pier, I said, uh, I asked her, I said, hey, mom, could you go tell, <laughs> could you tell that guy to throw the fish back in? <laughs> so, and she did that. She asked him to throw it back in. I don't know if she told him, you know, because my son feels bad about it. But anyway, she threw it back in. So that fish, uh, went back into the ocean and I don't know if it just, you know, got eaten by another fish right away or what, but at least I wasn't the one who was uh, responsible for its uh, death. Although maybe I injured it enough so that it then was uh, less able to live. So maybe I had a hand it, but anyways, um, I get the point that like, if you're directly involved with it, if you're the one doing the killing, that that's, that can be uncomfortable and maybe traumatic even um, depending on the details. But if you're more removed from it, then, you know, it's not such a, it, it's not traumatic for you. And you yeah, know, it's, it's obviously the plate arrives ready, you know, the, the meat right. cooked, it doesn't even resemble anything. Uh, even to some degree, I used to, before I was vegan, I used to take like a, a full chicken, like uh, from the supermarket. And even cutting it up into bits, that didn't feel that great. 
but uh, yeah, I mean, but I think it's something you could get used to. Like this is just, I mean, if I, if I, and also I think it probably depends on your background. If like, if you grow up on an island or something and your only way to survive is by catching fish, then, you know, maybe you'll never even think twice about it. It just seems totally natural. Um, but, you know, me, I was, you know, thrown into the, well, not thrown into the situation, but it, it was, it was an unusual situation for me, but, you know, maybe over time, if I did it more, then I would just become uh, less sensitive, sensitized to doing that kind of thing. For, uh, for killing humans as well. And, and, I, and I do kill other life forms like ants or something or gnats or mosquitoes. Yeah, I, um, don't, uh, I don't go all the way that, that far down. So, but, you know, the, the more, um, and I would kill a mountain lion or something if it was attacking me. And yeah, was, yeah, so let, let me let me explain in that sense. Like, yeah, if an animal is is attacking you, I'm not I'm not saying lay down your life by yeah. any sense. And if you were stuck on a desert island and you needed fish to live, then I'm not saying lay down your life. Right? And if to some degree, like uh, in the in the vegan society, one like there's there's a thing about uh, doing medical experiments on animals, and I think they they said it's okay, but I I'm pretty sure. That they also, but they, in the same context, are against doing it for no good reason, like just repeating an already proved experiment on mice over and over again for no good reason. Then, then they would be against that. But um, yeah, it's philosophically speaking, it's a new subject. Uh, I remember having a debate about this, and. Uh, it's still it's still not completely formed it's only it's only been some dec some decades there are a lot of people like even today like uh, arguing like which philosophy is, is the right way to address it i have virtue ethics so i'm very flexible about it there are people who want more deontolo deontological uh positions some people want like a hegelian master slave relationship some people want kantian well kant is deontological uh, but there's all sorts of positions on it. And uh, it's really in its infancy, philosophically speaking. I mean, even vegetarianism has been around for some hundreds of years. There's religious context to why you should be vegetarian. There's philosophical context. But uh, it's, it's, a very, it's a very, very new uh, subject. So one of the uh, considerations that I think is relevant here is is it causing needless pain or suffering? I think you used a phrase like that at some point. And I, I think that's relevant. Like if it is needless, if you're not getting any benefit from it, like you need this fish to survive or you need to kill the mountain lion because it's gonna attack you. Um, those are clear cases where I think you are, you're not causing needless pain and suffering. You're serving some benefit. So. I think medical research on animals does, I mean, I haven't looked into this closely, so, but I mean, at least on first blush, it seems reasonable to think that um, if you don't want to experiment on humans, but you want to test the drugs before you try them in humans, it seems like a good idea to test them on similar, at least as similar as you can get life forms that aren't human. And that, again, that's not needless pain and suffering. That's for a, 
um, humans, that's a human serving cause. And um, likewise with just eating pleasurable tasting food, that's not needless. I think, you know, meat can taste very good. So it's, it is serving the pleasure needing role that, or the, the fact that humans need pleasure to survive. I mean, it's a, it's a psychological need. If, if you don't have pleasure, what's the point of surviving? Um, so I think pleasure has a survival role. So, I mean, in all the cases that, that I think it's defensible to eat animals, it's, it's not a case of needless, causing needless pain or suffering. It's always, or, I mean, you might think that the pleasure you get from, or the value you get from eating animals is outweighed by the uh, disvalue of causing the pain and suffering. Um, and I guess that's, that's an argument you can make. Uh, and I, I guess I, I, I wouldn't want to dismiss that out of hands. Maybe in some cases it is true that the, the value you get is outweighed by the disvalue you cause. But I think, I guess that has to be, maybe that should be dealt with on a case by case basis rather than a general, like you said, you know, if, if you need the fish to survive, that's the only way you can live. And sure, you're, even you, a vegan, is going to eat the fish. So there's not like a principled, there's no principle that it's wrong to eat meat. It's just, you know, are the uh, it, benefits uh, it of doing it good enough to, to justify it? I guess, I guess you could see it, uh, it, it, it will hurt my soul to do it. Or it will scar my soul to do it in, in a romantic sense. Uh, if I have to live, then if like something's attacking me or I have no other choice, then sure. But it, in terms of regular day-to-day -day sustenance and stuff like that, like really, uh, I've been doing it for like uh, I don't know seven years now. Not not a, not a not a real struggle, by any sense. Uh, and I'm not like uh, I used to be more health. <coughs> Sorry. Right. <coughs> COVID. <coughs> I used to be more health conscious, and I used to get like all vegetables and stuff like that. And I'd still eat salads and stuff, but uh, I'm, I'm I'm a little more little more relaxed about it now. But yeah, it's uh, fairly easy. Once you get like a few favorites in, a few substitutes every once in a while. You know, I, I ate I ate meat all, most of my life, so once in a while a substitute is nice. Um, but it's it's fine, really. I don't actively like oh my god i like I, I don't actively like discipline myself not to eat meat i just don't care anymore about mm -hmm. it yeah i wonder if if my feelings about this would change if i looked into the videos that you can see about the conditions these animals are sometimes kept in like i mean there's sometimes people advertise their products as being uh, free range chicken or something or cage free chicken, which, you know, they're conveying the idea that these animals were raised in a, um, you know, more humane or less bad 
kind of uh, situation than others, like factory farms are sometimes portrayed as being. Um, and that makes it easier for people to consume the products, uh, which I guess that's, that's reasonable. I mean, all things being equal, would I rather have uh, meat that was raised in a, in a pleasant kind of life as opposed to, um, you know, they, they were just jammed in a cage and had a miserable time? Sure. I, yeah, I'd rather have, uh, I'd rather eat meat from an animal that lived a, a good life. But I said all things being equal. But now, what are the cost effects of, of that? Um, it, it, it would be more expensive. I mean, um, I think, I think in general, so in general, in, ge in, in general, the factories are where you're going to get the vast majority of your meat, like 90 something percent. If you go out of your way and look for some, something like that was treated more humanely, quote unquote, probably be more expensive. Some people like to do it because, you know, back in the day, like grass fed meat and all that nonsense. But with chicken specifically, the, the free range doesn't necessarily have to mean much because instead of being in battery cages that are the, like several layers off the ground, they'll just all be on the ground. It's still a closed, dark, uh, like pen, like a very large pen where they have on the ground these uh, uh, like water drinking facilities. And the idea of it being in the dark all the time, it's like as if you're always sleeping, so they grow faster. And typically, I won't have to see, but I'm under the impression within six weeks they can be eaten, the chickens. Uh, they've grown very quickly. A lot of them are very, very young. Some of them grow up deformed. Um, and they're very close to one another. I think uh, in terms of like pork, I'm pretty sure... 97% is, is uh, factory farm CAFOs. I think with cows, some people in America would like to like grass fed them. And it may be like, it's, maybe it's not in the 90%, maybe it's like lower than 90%. But even then it's like, if you wanna make a profit in a sense, it has to be optimized. You're giving them uh, these pellets, so soy pellets uh, with like, uh, chicken feather I, I believe it's soy pellets with, with chicken feathers mixed and corn perhaps and, and and they eat it because you can't letting them graze so letting them graze would, would mean uh they would live for longer so like a, a grazing one would be 36 months <coughs> a gaffer would be 18 months but uh but yeah i wonder if that would count as Maybe, maybe it should count as cruelty to animals. Like, so I said before that objectivists like Leonard Peikoff, I would guess Ayn Rand too, were opposed to cruelty to animals. And maybe something like factory farming, at least in certain cases, like these chickens who you're saying are raised in, in the dark the whole time, just these cages, maybe that should count as cruelty to animals. It's not like you're, you're breaking the bones, like, you know, imagine just going up to a chicken and just, you know, breaking its legs or something. You're not doing that, but uh, it's, a, it's another form of cruelty 
I, I think one could argue um, just keeping the, them in these very cramped, dark, maybe that's that's just uh, that's another form of cruelty. And um, if you're against cruelty to animals, maybe that should count. And and one should only eat chicken, or one should at least strive to str make efforts to eat chicken that is not raised in those kinds of conditions. Maybe that is um, the the moral thing to do if if one opposes cruelty to animals. Uh, uh, I mean, this is all new thinking to me because, as I said, I haven't thought about this before. But that seems like at least a reasonable position. Whether it ultimately holds up to scrutiny, uh, I would want to withhold judgment for now. Um, but it's at least a view I, I would consider. Maybe it's right. Uh, maybe I should only. Uh, maybe I should try to eat uh, free range chicken. <clears throat> um, maybe that's the moral thing to do. Even so, I guess there's. Um, so here's here's a. Let me go in this direction. Let's say that one concludes that factory farming is a form of cruelty to animals and that therefore one should not one should at least strive not to eat food that's been raised in that way animals that have been raised in that way now what about um the free range animals is it um is it bad even then to eat animals uh what what do you think about that? I guess well, let me not speculate. Um, so if all the animals were raised in good conditions, um, do you think it's still immoral to to eat them? Uh oh, did I lose you? Oh, I see you say yes, yep, in the chat here. Um, let me adjust the audio see if i can get you back okay can you hear me now yeah can you hear me okay now i got you back so i guess you heard my question yeah and you, your answer is yeah yeah so the question is if, if animals have had a good life <coughs> is it cruel to to kill them i mean to some degree certainly because they, they wanted to continue living their life having said that if you would like to get to eat an animal that died of natural old age, that could be fine. Uh, you know, had a heart attack, had a good life. You know, the the bull had a good life with a lot of other female cows, but you know, time creeps up on you, and he just had a heart attack after that last one. So, uh, so yeah. But um, I look at it, I look at it a bit differently because I'm a bit of a someone who likes innovations. We have all of these food innovations at the moment. So for example, there are these two large companies in America. I don't know, large, but two large-ish that make uh, meat-like uh, burgers. I think it's called Impossible Foods and uh, Beyond Beyond Beef or Beyond Meat. And it's it's pretty decent. It's uh, a touch on the expensive side. I think they're, they're lowering their prices a bit now. 
certainly if you put that in a burger and some sauces, it's very, very realistic. And um, from a food production point of view, I think it's a combination of pea protein, steam and pressure, and some other like ingredients. And you, you know, you don't have to wait 18 or 36 months for for that to to be raised and then killed and it let off like a bunch of uh just just from uh, like your own concerns like here here in the uk a lot of the poo from cows goes into our rivers and into our waters that then need to be uh, cleaned and you don't have that issue you just have like a very neat process where, you, where, you, where a bag of pea protein powder arrives to your factory and some other things and you put it together and and you can deliver it at a relatively cheap uh, cost that you can sustain the entire planet. Now, to some degree, the more countries come online in terms of higher GDP, they would be interested in eating meat just like the uh, rich countries do. So when, when they start coming online and they start getting rich and richer, they would want to do what rich countries do. And I think that right now there's a huge number of, of animals in the animal agriculture just to feed the west so people in america and stuff like that so 40 percent of all arable lands are uh taken for raising animals we could be using this to i don't know build new houses or uh, build farms for wheat and stuff like that we, we could feed more of the world if we didn't have to uh raise animals in this somewhat highly inefficient way. And I think that when uh, more countries are looking to eat meat, we can we can give them these alternatives, which should be cheaper over time and don't need to use as much resources in terms of conservation. And they're able to do it at a much quicker rate than uh, waiting for a cow to, to live 18 to 16 months. So artificial meat as a solution. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's kind of exciting, at least from my point of view. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's uh, another case where all things being equal. Yeah, go for the artificial meats. Um, I mean, you, you I, I would recommend you try one of those burgers. I mean, I, I I've know had, are, I've had like, uh, yeah, I've had imitation meat um i wouldn't say it's it's exactly i think i can tell a difference okay. but maybe not enough of a difference to which is not to say it's it's worse um maybe it's sufficiently good um but i think there is a difference you can taste so i think those two companies really stand out in terms of noticing a difference uh i'm sure enthusiasts will probably still notice a difference but um, I don't. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, if it feels, if, if you think that, look, this is tasty enough, then see how you feel about it. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, I guess what, one or two other thoughts on this. Um, uh, if if uh, we could uh, uh, slightly speed it up because it's getting oh. late for me. That's right. You're you're way ahead of me on time. Okay. Well, actually, I think that's 
that's probably this is a good place to to end okay. it um so thanks for coming on enjoyed enjoyed it Thanks for having me. Send, send uh, tell, send Sam Cedo my love. <laughs> Next time you see him. Uh, but yeah, uh, look, good luck with your debates. Um, prepare hard, and uh, you should be, should be okay. And uh, best of luck with your YouTube channel. Thank you, and same to you. Thank you. If you'd like to support more videos like this in my work of advancing Ayn Rand's ideas more generally, you can help by liking, subscribing, sharing, and becoming a contributor on Patreon. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you in my next video.